shoulder, we rifle and loot, drink up, me hearties, yo-ho. We kidnap and ravage and don't give a hoot, drink up, me hearties, yo-ho. Yo-ho, yo-ho, a pirate's life for me. Ahoy, me podcast listeners. Join us at the Three Men in Retrospective podcast as we run a shot across the bow and review the entire Pirates of the Caribbean film series. Listen in as myself and me two mates, Garrett and Matt, walk the plank and parlay every piece of this Disney franchise that has made over four and a half billion in price. We're beggars and flyers and ne'er do well cast, drink up me hearties, yo ho! I bet we're loved by our mommies and dads, drink up me hearties, yo ho! So strap yourselves in, grab the rum, and scupper ye headphones. Percolated media is fixing to pillage your airwaves right now. Drink up me hearties, yo ho! Yo-ho, yo-ho, a pirate's life for me. And toast to pirates. We burn up the city, we're really a fright. Drink up me hearties, yo-ho. We're rascals. Pirates of the Caribbean, at World's End. Released May 25th. 2007 budget was 300 million dollars with a box office take of 960 million and this was directed for the third and last time by gore verbinski that budget is a good place to start because for a 2007 movie it was at the time the most expensive movie ever made and i remember all that buzz they were talking about that a lot when this was out bruckheimer was defending it everybody was defending this in the press after a movie that a sequel that grossed over a billion dollars, I just thought, give them what they need, whatever they need. So, yeah, and, and that's what we got. Man, do we have a hefty budget and man, do we have a hefty movie? Yeah, this movie is the hefty garbage bag compared to all kinds of other productions around this time. Because let's take everyone back to a simpler time of 2007. I say simpler because we were not yet. And it's funny we talk about this. If this was made a year or plus later when the recession hit, there's a good chance this probably would not have had the budget that it did. Or oh, yeah. at the very least would have been significantly lower. But, you know, we talked about the second movie. It came out, and as Garrett said, box office take of over a billion. And we knew that there was going to be a follow-up less than a year later. But as we talked about, unlike the first one, which got praise across the board, reviews for the second one were a bit more mixed. And I wonder, what were the expectations for people not like myself going into this one? If you were someone who did not like the second movie or were not invested in these characters, and then you see the three-hour runtime, I got to wonder, was this too much to ask for a general audience? It's a great question. And, you know, I, I will say, I mean, even after that second movie, which initially I didn't find that great, but... And on a rewatch for this particular podcast, set of podcasts, I thought it was not as good as the first, but it was still fun as hell. I have to say, even initially, I was still pretty excited for this. I wanted to see how they ended it. I wanted to see how they took this trilogy 
And I am a staunch defender of the Matrix trilogy when, if we eventually get to that. So I like the fact that they take two stories and they film them in one session because when they do that, there's no way to adjust it. There's no way to take a character or take a situation that audiences respond to and actually expand on it to make it more viable for a national audience. They are stuck with what they have. They filmed all these things in order or not in order, but they filmed all of them already by the time the second one had come out. And that is how this story was going to be told. And I wanted to see how it was finished. I wanted to see where they took these characters. I wanted to see where Sparrow ended up. And uh, yeah, I was pretty excited for this. And say what we will about the second movie, what people were saying at that time, we still we still all thought that Gore Verbinski directed it very well. So yeah, I was excited to see where they took this. Speaking of conclusions and finishing things, Adam, I have to ask you, as someone who, speaking of back in the day, got these through Netflix DVD mail deliveries, was this... <laughs> Did you continue the trend or was this a theater viewing for you? This was the one as uh, I was looking at the dates and trying to remember. This is the one I believe Laura and I saw in theaters. Uh, so we had you know, gotten ready, watched the other ones ahead of time. But this was our first in theater viewing experience for a Pirates movie was this guy right here. So I'm glad you started that statement by saying you and Laura had seen the first two movies, because I have to be honest. I don't think I can imagine a conceivable scenario where you can watch this movie and understand it without oh. having seen the previous two. It, it's oh, it's got to no. be impossible. Yeah. Yeah, no Yeah, way. that's an impossible task. Yeah, there's absolutely no way. I mean, this is pre-marbleization and things where trying to jump into stuff later. This thing did it only three movies in. That would be the equivalent of walking into Infinity War and trying to figure out what the hell is going on. Mm-hmm. You know, nowadays, as far as I'm concerned... The franchise is an F word when it comes to movies because it's all just what's next, what's next, what's next. But this one, and it's amazing that it did as well as it did, because when something is so dependent on watching what comes before, a lot of times that doesn't necessarily work out. But obviously, for at least the box office receipts for this installment, that didn't seem to hamper it. It certainly mm-hmm. did not, because if you look at the, the box office take, this one was slightly smaller. You know, it didn't quite crack a billion. But because they were so similar, when you look at their collective total, it seems like the same amount of people went to go see it. It didn't. It would have been interesting if, let's say, this one made half of what it did. Mm-hmm. But you know that didn't come to pass, of course. But May two thousand seven is an interesting period because in the span of a month, we got Spider Man three, Shrek three, and Pirates three, all mm. the same month. And I even at the time. The first two movies that I mentioned did not get good word of mouth, especially in comparison to the first, their predecessors, like Spider-Man 3, is still shit upon in various circles. Oh, yeah. the, the less said about Shrek 3, the better in my estimation. But when it came to this movie, the take that I heard, and I think is still echoed, much like the coins that they throw throughout this movie and hold up to their ears, is that overstuffed tends to be the biggest yeah. criticism aimed at this movie and it's we'll talk about our thoughts on that but when you have a movie that's three hours and this is a hefty 245 like it is not a two hour and 20 minute movie with 45 minutes of credits it is about as long as what we got with the last avengers movie it's pretty damn close yeah again though at at this point we thought it was conclusion too so Mm -hmm. they're gonna throw everything at us that they could and I was for that. I was really for whatever they wanted to tell and how they want to conclude this. I was I was there for it. I think that was the big 
benefit of this movie's marketing, unlike the second one, which had a built-in investment because it was the first follow-up to a very successful first installment. You look at this one, instead of selling it as more of the same, which it sort of is, it is a natural continuation. It's almost a direct sequel when you look at trying to map out the time. It was sold on being the conclusion and such a spectacle that you had to go see this in the theater. They showed the big Maelstrom climax in all the trailers. They were really selling the excess and the spectacle. But one thing I want to mention about the marketing was asking this question. Because, Garrett, you mentioned the Matrix sequels. And I think for good reason. They're very similar. Hell, right down to some of the story beats. Was it a mistake to show Jack Sparrow so much of the marketing materials, given the cliffhanger of the second movie? Oh, God. You know what? No, because everyone knew that he was going to be back in this. I did not think that was a mistake at all. I thought what the marketing did. What, I mean, come on. They spent so much money on these movies. You have to put your bankable, most bankable star out there. You have to put your star that was nominated for an Oscar for this exact role front and center. If Heath Ledger had lived and we would have gotten Dark Knight Rises, they would have done the same exact thing to Joker in that movie. You have to put them front and center. Adam, you in agreement? Only because I am, but to the point that I think, and we discussed it in that one, that they really tried to make the second film, and it's made because they have titles I don't remember. So Pirates 2. <laughs> um, and it only gets worse. But in the second Pirates movie, we discussed that they really tried to shift that and make it Will's movie. And it's Will's story, but none of these, for the most part, I think we discuss it in this one, none of these movies get taken away from Jack. So I think if they would have tried to sell this on Elizabeth, I don't know if it would have done what it ended up doing at the box office. So I think when you have something like this and when you have a personality like Johnny Depp, who love him or hate him, and for the troubles that he did bring to the franchise with his antics off act, off screen, I think that if you're going to try to get this movie back to that billion dollar mark, you've got to show his face. But I do wish as an adult, I wish it would have been kept more ambiguous if you're trying to get the 10-year-olds to 16-year-olds in there, which is strange considering how dark this movie starts. I think you have to sell it on Jack Sparrow. I'm sort of in agreement with both of you that it was not an outright mistake to put Jack front and center because if you look at the first movie as Elizabeth's, second is Will's, and Jack is the third person who's been in all three of these movies. I don't count Barbosa because that's a cameo at the end of the second one. But these are your three principal leads. So the idea of sort of setting this movie up as being Jack's front and center. I mean, he's the middle person in the posters. He's top build. He was that in the second one. But I thought the movie did a good job of not having him overtake the movie, as we talked about earlier. We mentioned that. I was shocked because I thought the second one was more centered around the Sparrow character. And it really wasn't. Again, he was a background character, which is when he works the best. But the parallel I make is Han Solo in Return of the Jedi. We saw him being taken away by Slave One in Empire Strikes Back. Of course, he's going to be coming back. Everyone knows he's going to be coming back, so you have to market him. Now, it's not the same thing in that he's not front and center in that movie, obviously. We're going to talk about that later on this year. But I think the fact that Sparrow was the cliffhanger given in the second movie, and he is still here, again, you have to market him that way because he is part of the trifecta that this movie revolves around. Well, you mentioned the opening, so let's dive right into the movie. No. By the way, before you get to that, let me say, <laughs> I have been looking most forward to this podcast 
than all the others in this series. Because, Matt, I've been wondering how the hell you're going to handle this fucking plot. I, I do not envy you whatsoever. I have my own charts that I have to keep okay. because I ran out of paper to fit all my notes onto this movie that I'm going to, I'm going to read the plot synopsis off Wikipedia, like the, the two sentence blurb that they put out. It makes the movie sound considerably more straightforward than it actually is. <laughs> like, you read you read this, and it's like, okay, that sounds pretty simple, because it, it says, Captain Barbosa, Will Turner, and Elizabeth Swan must sail off the edge of the map, navigate treachery and betrayal, find Jack Sparrow, and make their final alliances for one last decisive battle. That is accurate, but they should add a couple dots and put the words, <laughs> for three hours. <laughs> so... I hope you get to sit back and enjoy my navigational skills that I will do my best because this, as we will get into, is not as straightforward no. as, that, no. as that description would lead you to believe. Someone had to gather his own brethren court just to try to figure out how to speak to what was going to happen. Yeah, my, no my notes look like the code book that we see during this movie. <laughs> so, Adam, you know, we start off with a movie as I put it in the disc because I like watching my physical copies. And we're seeing all these people being executed for both piracy and associating with piracy in any way. And I sat there going, when did I put in my DVD of Les Miserables? Because I half expected no them to start shit. singing in this opening, which they do. But I thought it was going to be a whole giant <laughs> Yeah, we mentioned last week how dark that second movie starts off. There's a series of scenes in the opening 30 minutes or so of that movie that you're like, man, we're going way dark here. And how do you get more dark than just showing a bunch of nooses and <laughs> all these platforms that these people are going to be executed on? It's uh, it, it starts off pretty dark. Well, the movie says all the way to my... having a kid. Yeah. The movie says, hold yeah. my beer to your question of uh, how much darker can you get? Cause they openly hang a child. There's no ambiguity to this whatsoever. Straight up hang a child to start a Disney movie. Oof. That's the amazing thing. When you think about it, it's a Disney banner in front of it. This thing doesn't say touchstone. Walt Disney productions and who nearly like to start with a mass execution. That was not on my bingo board. Alex. <laughs> <laughs> it's a, provocative way to start the movie but i i will say this the second movie we talked about does have some darker blemishes to it but for the most part it's still pretty more often than not when the jokes hit and it has to be more lighthearted, it helps shift the tide so to speak i can't say the same for this movie i think this is the one that really has that strains the hardest at having to balance the morbid stakes with patented Disney humor. I never think the scales are even in this movie. There is no balancing whatsoever in this. It starts right off. You got you got this sequence, and we move along. I mean, it gets wackier and wackier and wackier. And I have to say, I came out of that third movie last week thinking, my God, this was way better than the second. I had a blast with this. What a series. I, to preview my thoughts, I did not come out of this viewing feeling the same way. It was pretty hard to get into just the logistics of this movie because there are none. So speaking of not having anything, we open up in a brand new location after the hanging and the title card. Like I said, I have expected them to call for prisoner 24601 to close this sequence. But it's done as the singing is a sort of rebellion to compel all the pirates to come together. Because apparently when you sing, and we, I have a lot to say about the mythology of this series, 
especially in this movie. But apparently you sing into a coin, and if someone else picks it up, they can hear the echoes of that song, even though they're hundreds of thousands of miles away. <laughs> Which is where our characters start, the ones that have survived the second movie, wind up in Singapore. We see Elizabeth navigating through the ravine. We can see that the East India Trading Company slash British Army is working on some kind of occupation. They're conducting raids looking for them. She comes up together with a group of pirates who threaten her and is rescued by Barbosa, who I have to say, I call bullshit on bringing him back. But every time Jeffrey Rush is on screen, I find myself not complaining because he's the one who really keeps me from turning on this movie completely. He is a sheer delight. Every time he's on screen, I completely agree with you. You know, I, I said at the end of last week's movie, when he showed back up, I was like, fuck yes. I was happy. I'm like, I want to watch the third one now. I was ready to watch the third one already uh, when I saw him appear. He is a very enjoyable character. He's mean without being too evil. This is the type of Disney villain that I love. He's so great. And Jeffrey Rush, I love seeing him portray this character on screen. He has no business being here, but I'm glad that he is. Yeah, Jeffrey Rush absolutely understands the assignment, but he changes slightly from the first one to this one here. He's a little more lighthearted. He's a little more playful. And he is that sense of fun and enjoyment that you get. He doesn't turn slapsticky. He's not necessarily comic relief. He's just fun in that way that this movie needs to be broken up with from time to time. And it's amazing because, yeah, to bring him back, we don't even get an explanation. You know, it's how he's brought back. He just is. But look at his other works and look at this. And I think you could really respect and admire what he does because it's such a different type of role, but it's the one that these kind of actors that are a little older, a little more weathered in the art just really can sink their teeth into like he does that juicy apple. And he makes this series for the time that he is on screen as much about him as everybody else does. It's supposed to be a, you know, a trifecta of characters, but he definitely makes it a quartet. What I love about it is what exactly what you outlined Adam. The only explanation we're given is he walks down the stairs at the end of the second movie. There is literally nothing that explains it. I'm happy. Yeah, I'm happy he's here. And I think that says a lot about this character. And I think, again, it goes back to being a writer of these of these franchises, like these Marvel movies and things that they have a job to do, which is to please audiences and to please audiences. You know, they do it in TV, too. If a character is getting more attention, you write that character in as many scenes as you can here. They knew that this character was going to catch on, and that is why he is brought back for literally no reason. But it's just so fun to see him. And there may have been some explanations that were planned to be given or fleshed out. But this movie, for as long as it is, it really handicaps itself by giving a lot of one-line explanations to shit that it decides that it's not going to follow anymore. This movie could have been two, and we could have got a lot of answers to things. But it's amazing how many times, thank God I had closed captioning on, because I'm like, oh, shit, well, we're just going to get a one-line explanation, and that's not followed anymore. And I have a feeling that might have been what happened between Teodora and Barbosa. Yeah, there, mm. there's one line that explains who brought him back, but there's no definitive explanation as to how she was able to do that. And and the explanation that we get for why he's back is never a point in the second movie, which, which I guess kind of makes sense because that's your big reveal. But when you find out who she actually is and why she needed him to come back in the first place... You would think that's something that they would have laid the breadcrumbs for in the second movie. They really don't. And the thing about Barbosa is he's the only character who goes through this entire movie relatively consistent. He has his own allegiances, 
largely to himself as a quote-unquote God-fearing man. But everyone else, Garrett, to use a wrestling term, this movie has more heel and face turns than Kane's entire WWF run. <laughs> use that line a couple times. You know what? I can't disagree with you, but isn't that the origin of piracy, though? Isn't that kind of what they were built on way back when? That's kind of what their legend is. But you're right. They take that to a whole new level with this. It, it works against it, if I can be honest, because at no point do I know who's good and who's bad. And that's a problem when you're dealing with movies like this, when you're dealing with fantasy movies like this. You need to know who is trustworthy. Even Will at some points in this movie, I'm like, what the fuck are, you, are your allegiances here? It's oh, this has so many. It's back, frustrating this watching has, this fucking movie. Without a doubt. This is so many back and forths and so many backroom deals and rewrites and last minute decisions that this is a pay-per-view up in Canada that you could end up with Will screwed Will at the end of this thing, not knowing who's going to end up where. Wow. Yeah, they literally... <laughs> You're welcome. They, they, they crammed an entire season's worth of Game of Thrones into three hours. Yeah. It's, it's basically what this movie is. And I think it does hurt, to your point, Garrett, it hurts the writing because it makes the characters that I felt like I knew pretty well for those first two movies. Yeah. I, I feel like I'm always in murky water. I'm never 100% on board with anybody because the movie continuously causes your allegiances to turn based on how they act. Yeah, and honestly, I don't know if I were to get this script how I would direct it. And I'm not going to put it on the directing. I'm going to put a lot of it on the writing, though, because as fun as those first two movies were, we said there were times when they really didn't make any sense. If you if you look at it logically, when you have a script like this. And you have so many of these twists and turns that we're going to get deep into. I mean, right now, we're only, what, about 10 minutes into this thing. Um, When you have this many, it throws a director off because a director doesn't know, okay, what fuel do I bring to this scene? What fuel do I bring to this scene? Because we don't know where each character is coming from. So speaking of where they're coming from, why are they here in the first place? Well, the writers threw a bunch of locations into a hat that they wanted to do some shooting in and came up with Singapore. They're here to acquire some navigational charts from a captain who runs Singapore. And here's where one of my writing problems is. At the end of the second movie, she says that you need someone who knows how to get to World's End, which Barbosa does not know how to do. Mm-hmm. I am so glad someone else caught this because that was in my notes as well. That is simple logic. Every time a Disney movie, and this now has happened for... I think it really starts here, and it's happened in a lot of their F-word franchises ever since. When Disney decides that they are going to be held over a barrel of rum by the Chinese censors and capitulate to what is required to get into that market. And I'm not trying to be an asshole, but China says you have to do X, Y, Z, or we're not going to show you your film. Well, if you want an extra $400 million, you're going to do what you're going to do. This happened in Age of Ultron. This happened here. It happens in more and more Disney movies specifically. I got no problem with the inclusion of going to Singapore, of Sao Fang. There's some interesting stuff here, but you've got to make it make sense, and you got to have a good reason for it. But this goes back and forth and in and out in a way that's so convoluted it ends up being just stupid and it doesn't meet at the end what it's supposed to meet here at the beginning and by the way have it make sense and don't push these racial stereotypes down our throats either i mean (laughs) this is this is embarrassing at times like i did not realize chow yun fat is a wonderful actor i love him to pieces but here he's stuck in this role that this is the type of stuff that john belushi characterized in saturday night live this (laughs) is that kind of fucking parody and oh my god it's just oh it's so fucking frustrating (laughs) so for the record i think this is the example i use and i'm going to keep going back to this 
of why Marvel could not have done the comic book Mandarin. <laughs> Oh, this, God. This, yeah. is, this is what it is. <laughs> Captain Salfang might as well be Fu Manchu. Uh-huh. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's a good point. But before they can see him, they have to remove all their weapons, including Elizabeth, who comes packing more heat than in Orlando <laughs> summer. <laughs> to make me laugh, that's fun. It makes me laugh when she, she pulls, like, a grenade out of her ass, and she's got six, yeah. she's got six pistols on her, and she's not – she's a small woman. <laughs> like, <laughs> so they go see – Sal Fang, played by Chow Yun-Fat, who, as a John Woo enthusiast that I am, you know, Chow Yun-Fat is sort of the actor that you'll associate most. And I love seeing him here, but I think he's he's hindered by the stereotypical component of this character. And for a movie that was largely sold on him, he's only in about three scenes. Was it sold on him? To a point. Like, yeah, he's in all I the remember. trailers, like, his name is firmly right after Kira Knightley's. Interesting. Turns out that he has the navigational charts that they need to go to Davy Jones' locker. But he's not willing to give them up because he already has Will captive. And from here, we get the first of many instances of them trying to explain the purpose of this plot. Where Barbosa says that all the pirate lords have to come together, which has never been established in the other movies, to essentially fight back. But Sal Fang's not willing to do it because he has no desire to bring Jack Sparrow back from the dead. And as they say... Because he never named a successor before he quote unquote died, they have no choice but to go get him. And this is when you could have, and there's no way you're doing a film without Jack Sparrow. But if you would have had a film of Barbosa leading the charge and Jack comes back at the end of this movie to set up what comes next, I think you could have had an amazing film. But as such, you're deciding everybody is cramming into the playground. And there's too much going on right here, right away. There's just too much going on. And it's whiplash inducing is to figuring out the who and the why. And we're going to introduce just a shipload of new people over and over throughout the course of this thing. And to be expected to follow it. Oof. I mean, I remember sitting in a movie theater back then and I didn't have a notepad and your brain just starts. The brain is in a storm of maelstrom right away trying to follow what they're wanting us to. Yeah, I remember trying to draw charts and explaining to my, at that time, 15-year-old brother what the fuck is happening in this movie. Because the one thing that this movie does not need is more characters. Yeah, no shit. It's hard enough keeping track of everybody between the, the good guys and the quote-unquote villains, but now you're adding in superfluous characters who are only here to get Elizabeth into full-initiated piracy. That's the, that's the only reason he, he is here is to contrive a way for her to have a seat at the table later on. Yep. Which has a basis in fact, but is just done. Yeah. It takes the longest ship or Magellan would say that was a long voyage it had to take to get there. <laughs> nice. the, nego- the negotiations don't go very well. Barbosa and Elizabeth are held at gunpoint. They're ready to surrender, but they're, accompanying party of Gibbs and everyone throw swords up at him as, as backup. <laughs> <Fun. and> Barbosa <laughs> just can't do anything but smile. And from here, they realize there's a traitor amongst them, which is a line you can take a drink every time you hear throughout this movie. Mm, yeah. Because the, the English army comes busting through the door like the Kool-Aid man. We get a shootout where people are just getting shot left and right. Verbinski still knows how to direct action really well. I can figure out where everyone is despite the low lighting and them being outside a lot. But I also didn't realize that they came prepared with booby traps. There's that wagon that they have that is musically lined up to hit a certain amount of notes that explode. So for, for, the, overcomplicated is the right word because Will is already here. Why would you send him to steal the charts if you could go in there diplomatically 
and just talk. Mm-hmm. Yep. Because we need this action scene. It's the Michael Bay effect of, well, too, not much has happened. We, we've done a lot of exposition. We need to throw an action scene here just to keep the audience life and up. Yep. And you're right. There's no reason for it. You know, and there's one thing that I said about that first movie, and to an extent last week's movie, is that there was a reason for a lot of what happened in those movies. There's no reason for any of this. I'm going to say no, but when this action scene shoots off, it is a very engaging action sequence. It's vicious and violent. Again, I was still struck by this is a Disney PG-13 film, so there's no blood and stuff, but there's plenty of powder being fired right into people's faces and guts. And it really had me brought into a very well done staged, choreographed and shot action sequence. Yeah, this is also, the you know, we went for a movie in the first one that had some dark elements to geisha women openly being shot in the head. Yeah. yeah. Will and Sal Feng make a deal where Will says, after we rescue Jack, I'll hand him over to you in exchange for, I get the Black Pearl so I can free my father. Now, here's my question. What does the Black Pearl have to do with rescuing his father from Davy Jones? Absolutely nothing. They have so many puzzle pieces that they have to work with in this movie that they forget how to put them together. So Mm -hmm. characters do things where they have a good motivation, but it's the way they go about them that makes no logical sense. And let me ask you this, Matt. You mentioned how much you loved the first two movies. We're this far into this movie, and you're having these questions as a guy in his late 20s. What about as a 15-year-old? Were you engaged by any of this at all? Or were you feeling like, even back then, like, what the fuck is happening here? I was enamored with the action because Verbinski mm-hmm. is, has such a keen eye for it. But I also, I like these characters, even though they do things, what I was watching at that time, that from an analytical perspective, I would have questioned. But I think this is also one of those movies that seeing it in a theater, you can't help but be wrapped up in the, mm-hmm. at least the pageantry of it, even if the writing yeah. doesn't make a lot of sense. Because there's times, like, and we've talked about it already, that there's moments in this movie where it's like, all right, why are you doing it? What sense does that make? So speaking of making no sense, they take the charts, they get a ship and a crew, and they wind up in Antarctica? <laughs> this was, it's weird. So when I, when I watched this, I watched it in, in two pieces, just time-wise, and, and ran out of time one night. So after Singapore, I kind of paused and got back into it. And Laura watched the rest of it with me. And we're going, I don't remember them going here. Why did they do it? Backed up a little bit, and, and I'm like, okay, no reason. And they don't even stop here. It's just for a visual. They go mm-hmm. through, and then they're somewhere else. <laughs> you got this it. It was nothing. a production... Yeah, it's a it's yeah. a production decision, not a thing that happens logically in the movie. Somebody made a really nice image that they were using to sell the film on, and that piece of artwork got its way into the film. And it looks beautiful. It's striking in its design and everything else, but it serves zero purpose whatsoever. And if you're trying to navigate the globe, it also serves no factual point whatsoever. And clearly, like, none of them would survive in this weather based on how they're drawn. Not that I'm looking for that level of logic, but the movie does ask the question in this part, why don't they just bring Jack back like they brought Barbosa back? So they have to bring in Naomi Harris to remind the audience he's technically not dead. He's in sort of like Neo. He's in purgatory. Yeah. Like she might as well be the the freaking uh, the Oracle. Oh God. There's way too much of her in this fucking movie too. Oh God. I like Naomi Harris. Don't get me wrong. But God, she was just, again, we're going to talk about it with another character here in a little bit, but she was great as a background character. Here, she is the bringer of all things in this movie. Like, oh, man, I, I do not remember feeling this way when I walked out of that movie, like I mentioned earlier. But, man, at this point in the movie, I am rebelling. It is not even fun to watch at this point. 
and the movie also has to, at this point, give a lot of exposition about what everything means. Because they have Gibbs explain the flash of light that they see, which signals when someone comes back from the dead, which technically doesn't make sense later on because Jack isn't technically dead. So why would there be a flash? Oh, my God. The fact that the movie triples down on the supernatural is a problem because the first movie has it, but it was as straightforward as can be. Cursed pirate gold makes them undead. That's all there is to it. Here, they're explaining all the fine details that just aren't interesting to talk about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's like everything that they had in the blue sky phase of outlining uh, where they wanted this trilogy to go. He was like, I got no one that's going to tell me I can or can't do anything. I'm throwing every bit of it in. So Barbosa tells Will that the problem is not getting to the land of the dead. It's coming back. Although this coming from someone who is resurrected by the flick of a wrist at the end. of the <laughs> We then cut to evil boardroom meetings with Beckett basically all right so I'm gonna use a Star Wars comparison here. This Ugh, is why you, Governor you're gonna Tar- fucking go here. Yeah, this is why <laughs> Governor Tarkin is not the main villain of the trilogy because he's good up to a point. The problem is that they make Beckett so powerful that it's at the expense of both Norrington and especially Davy Jones. Yeah, it's an undercutting decision. He explains that we're just hunting them all down because he had his guy in Singapore that overheard Will and Salfang's conversation because holy shit is this movie both contrived and convenient again when I heard that they were making two movies I was excited to see how the story would end but when I'm watching this movie and I'm seeing just the way these contrivances just keep piling piling on like how much fucking shit are you asking me to swallow at this point and Adam made a great point this could have easily been two movies they put all of this in one three hour movie and I'm like fuck man like if it's going to be like this why even bother making a third there's just nothing logical in this fucking thing let me ask a question and this is purely hypothetical is there a way to take elements from the last movie and this movie and just make that one three-hour movie as your second film? Yeah, you're talking, can we do the, um, to, that we're going to discuss later, can we do Clone Wars and Revenge of the Sith and make it good? Yes, I think there absolutely is. Yeah, because you could basically take you know, but- the, the climax of this movie. And part of this, you would also probably have to lose Barbosa because it could be awkward to put him in like halfway through a, through a movie. But you could take that climax and just make it the end of Dead Man's Chest. Trying to make Beckett matter and trying to care about him as a villain is a massive flaw. Yes. That doubles that doubles down on how uncharismatic he was last film. He's even worse this film. And his back and forth, I mean, he gets scenes with Davy Jones. He gets scenes with Norrington. He gets scenes with Jack. He gets scenes with Will. He gets scenes with all of our main characters. And in none of those scenes does he resonate anything that makes me like or hate the character. He is no, but, as no. vanilla as freaking Safeway Select ice cream. He's Kirkland brand vanilla ice cream. He's not even vanilla bean. There's nothing there. There's nothing to like or hate about him enough. You know, no, and, and it killed him off maybe at the end of last film. And the East India Trading Company felt like it mattered that they wanted to take over the pirates, but they don't even give East India Trading something that makes them villainous or virtuous in their stead. It's just this guy. Yeah, and I mentioned last week that as much as I didn't like its inclusion, the fact that they had the Kraken in last week's movie, you knew that there was a threat there. What is the threat in this movie? What is the threat that Beckett brings to this movie? There is nothing that is that foreboding as that crack and coming out of that water that I feel at all in this movie. And the, the, the absence of danger in this movie is another big flaw. Well, there's no absence of runtime 
So I guess that that's one thing that this movie has <laughs> in excess. The only person who doesn't seem to really care is Davy Jones, because even though he's under Beckett's command, he's just blowing ships up left and right and leaving no survivors. <laughs> like, he's just like, I'm gonna, I'll work for you, but I have no desire to do the job as it is written. Until he's told that he has to do it a certain way. Even, mm. even the absolute badass fun scene stealing Davy Jones and freaking cuckolding when Beckett's like, okay, he can't do that anymore. It's, ah, Davy Jones should have been the one to kill Beckett at some point. And it also should have happened. If not at the end of the last movie, you make that at your, mid, fact, your one. mid action. After they rescue Jack, that's when it happens. Yeah, use him to kick off Act 2, you know, and really set shit going. But he's he's told that, look, we need people to interrogate, which only works if they're alive. Because <laughs> <laughs> they're basically, his endgame is just to wipe out piracy, which is just such a weak thing for villainy. But it's also the problem with making pirates your protagonist, because it's like, we have to hold and preserve the noble profession that involves murder, rape, and pillaging. Yeah, right. <laughs> it, that's the problem. That first film, we talked about how they did not completely make you endeavor to the pirates too much. Well, by the time we're done with part two, the pirates are your heroes. They're your good guys. So now you're talking about the law being your evil side. And if you're going to do that, you just better find a compelling way to do so. And these writers do not have that in them. The same people that wrote Godzilla, what was it, 1997, cannot figure out how to make you know villainy a good thing in this one. Well, you also offset the first one by having Will and Elizabeth not be involved in piracy whatsoever. They're civilians, and mm-hmm. in one case, royalty. But by the time you get to the end of this movie, they're both balls deep in pirates. I, I mean, she's also balls deep in him at one point. Literally. Um, <laughs> but yeah, that's that's five hours from now. we got a lot of ground to cover. So then cut to, you know what else this movie reminded me of? We'll talk about this a year from now, not just The Matrix. It reminds me so much of Star Trek Generations with that Nexus device. Mm-hmm. And this movie's about as lethargic as that one, too. So it's the same thing of we have to bring someone back with Shatner slash Kirk and this one, Jack, because they apparently the way to get to Davy Jones's locker is just you fall off the face of the planet. So apparently the Earth is flat in this world. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> I forgot about this. I forgot this is how they went there. I thought they flipped, you know, themselves upside down to go to Davy Jones' locker. I forgot they just sailed off the end of the earth. No, because that would have been surprisingly clever. <laughs> and 30 minutes into the movie, we're reintroduced to Jack. Um, oh, God. And I do, I do love ahead. when they go over, and this is a very deep cut for somebody like me, and I have the volume turned up. When they go over the edge and it goes black, the audio that you hear is a direct lift from the Pirates of the Caribbean ride. It is exactly what you get when you go down the drop into the ride. And that popped me huge. For me feeling lethargic and me wanting something, I got my Disney ears on at that moment. Boy, I'm glad you found something to like in this. So, uh, you know how pirates mark the X on a map to signal either buried treasure? I have the X written down on this map because this is the specific moment where this franchise officially becomes the Jack Sparrow show. Yes. And not only that, but I have said from the beginning, Jack has made one grand entrance after another. There have been heroic entrances. There have been just a masterfully shot shooting out of out of the water. Like there are things that they've done with this character in, its introdu- in his introductions that have been just rousing and very crowd pleasing. This they literally took David Lynch, melded it with Terry Gilliam, 
and <laughs> we get some weird fucking bizarre reintroduction to this character and to me when I look at this intro it is a great way to encapsulate my feelings of this entire movie and I might be giving my end score away by saying this but it's too much of a good thing I remember a wacky sparrow sequence I do remember this but I thought it was like after he had drank a lot of rum and it was like it was an hallucination I had completely forgotten this is how he is reintroduced to this audience he's coming out of his braids and he's coming out of his beard there's an angel jack and an evil jack I mean this is just too bonkers for me dude this is way out of left field it's also the problem of this is the side of johnny depp i can't stand where he just does a lot of mugging and this scene goes on over five minutes of yeah it's a it's not just simple a simple reintroduction like this thing goes on forever because this is their start of their movie and i I have to ding this franchise because again i thought when i saw those first two movies that last week when he saved elizabeth that was such a great fucking shot great way to introduce this reintroduce this character to this world and here is so much of him and He's not doing anything that makes him a hero of this franchise. He's not doing anything to make me like this character. It's just it makes me want him off the screen. I think if they would have used this in a way that for the entire rest of the film, our other heroes, quote unquote, could have questioned whether or not he was sane throughout the entire thing. And that plays into the do you think he makes it up as he goes along? This could have mattered later. It is shot beautifully. It looks amazing. I'll give it that. But this is some of the biggest artistic douchebaggery that is in this franchise. And the amount of time it goes on and on and on is it's a lot to go through. It's literally this is Neo in that subway. And yes, revolutions where yes, just, it is where you're like, all right, can somebody just yell cut for the love of God and move on? And the movie yep. is so uncreative here that they literally just use the same reprieve of his first introduction to reintroduce him to the characters here. Mm-hmm. Like they, they couldn't come up with anything creative outside of rocks that turn into craps. Yeah, I, I mean, 30 plus minutes in, we, we've already brought back Jack, and it makes the entire ending of the second one feel superfluous because they solve it at the drop of a hat. And he's, it's Davy Jones' locker. There should be like dozens, if not hundreds of people trapped here, but it's only yep. Jack. But I do like how he thinks when Jack reintroduces himself to everyone, he thinks they're all hallucinations. Yeah, there's some good lines here. There's some great shots here. I think that it's the time that it takes for them to get off of whatever this island is, which kind of deserves its name. This could have been an island of the dead flipped upside down, taken it back to the first one. Isle of the dead, Isle of the dead it would have been a, a smart way to go. It is laborious to get where we got to go. Yeah. Once he finally shows up to the crew, again, there are great lines here. You're right, Adam. And there are some great ideas going on. The problem is this movie's train of thought just rarely leaves the station. The ideas are there. They just never go through with it in any way that's satisfying. There's some good stuff here, like when Barbosa's like, yeah, remember last time you saw me, you shot me. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> great stuff. Yep. Absolutely. I, I love Barbosa. Davy Jones, I still like. The people that I liked last time, with the exception of Jack, I still really, really like this time. Even Jack has some great lines here. You know, again, once he finally shows up. But at this point, this movie has gone so off the rails that I – there is a point when it wins me back. I'm going to go ahead and say that. I jump back on, but it's not for a long time. Well, there's also the – we talked about how the first one is a, is a great continuation of the second one. And despite having so many plot points into this one, the movie at least remembers that Elizabeth is responsible for him being there in the first place. And he's just, he's fucking, yes. he's pissed off at her. <laughs> but then it turns into, oh, Will's mad at her because he didn't tell her. Ugh, 
these two on again, off again throughout this film. God damn, pick a side. Yeah, and these are two characters who I used to really like, and now I don't really care for either of them in this movie. No, and by the end of it, I kind of wish they went their separate ways. Out of respect, it's just – and the lines they have to each other. Like, I don't believe their love for each other anymore. No, it's just the – I was getting prequel flashbacks here. It's two pretty people on screen, so they, they got to be the ones to love each other. Yeah. And she's they're the, the ones that have taken a shower. Yeah, they're, they're the ones that are closest to age. Yes. And there's some fun antics here, like Jack and Barbosa arguing over who's captain of the ship. Who's got the bigger spyglass. Yeah. It's like, maybe my charts. He's like, all right, fine, that makes you chart man. So th- the question is, how much time do they spend in the locker? Because it goes from day to night, and when it goes to night, they see basically these canoes that have people that have died, which is where we get the backstory about, oh, this is what Davy Jones's job actually was. Not only that, but if you were to ask me what one thing did I remember from this movie when I saw it in theaters, and Laura agreed with me because Laura and I had this discussion then, it's that Elizabeth's father is killed off screen and we find out because he's in a freaking boat as they're trying to escape Davy Jones locker. What a BS. I mean, this is just another, Hey, there was a line that he was asking questions about the Mm -hmm. heart. And because of that, suddenly he's dead in a boat down here in Davy Jones locker. If you did not have closed captioning on earlier, like I did, or if you were in theaters, then you have no idea why her father is dead and it's just one more symbol of just how how shitty this thing is written i mean look there's characters who are killed on screen in unsatisfying ways but this is one of the problems with this movie is that there's too many characters but and the movie recognizes we have to trim the fat but they're done in such haphazard ways that when people die you don't care and this should be like a genuinely like sad moment but the movie's like all right we have no time but to make this somewhat efficient, he has to explain that whoever stabs the heart becomes the captain of the Flying Dutchman and that the cycle can never be broken. There always has to be a captain. Yeah. Yep. The Dutchman must have a captain. Here's the, here's the rules to how it happened. Did he hang out with Bootstrap Bill? How did he find this info? We're not going to worry about that. He just found the information. So dead man, captain exposition of that boat. And oof. Damn. Yeah, and this is the only, I will say this is one of the only quiet moments of Jack when he looks at her and says, we're not back. Mm-hmm. And this is what I keep talking about. Visually, this thing is gorgeous. And that scene where they're sailing at night and it's the reflection of the stars above and below, it looks beautiful. And it is completely underdone by every word that is spoken. It's also the dumb question, and I'm going to ask it. Why can't he just get on the boat? Yeah, great question. They make it clear that you can't go in that water, but yeah, throw a line. Yeah, it's like the floor is lava. I didn't touch. I'm safe. So the next scene, cut to daylight and everyone's dehydrated. And I kept thinking of Muppet Treasure Island with the Cabin Fever song. (laughs) And it would not have been the most absurd thing to happen in this movie because now we have to have Jack having conversations with miniature versions of himself. Oh, fuck. Oh, boy. Yeah, this is the whole, you said it, Adam, this is the whole good Jack, bad Jack going on here. And oh, my God, it's just too much. It's and this happens like four times in the movie. There, at no point did we see any of this in the previous two movies. We are introducing it here, and it lessens Jack's character, quite honestly. And I don't know whose decision this was. I don't know if this was written. I don't know if this was improvised. I know they went on set with an unfinished script for this movie. And oh, it really? I hadn't showed. noticed. Yeah. <laughs> and it, it, you're right. It just makes you think, God, how much did Verbinski let Depp improvise on this? A it's, lot, yeah. It, it just... It, Gets out of control here. And I, I thought that this character was reined in this trilogy. I really did. I did not have a memory of how they handled Jack Sparrow, but 
they're making me hate him in this movie. This is really where we talked about too much of a good thing. I think that's a great summarization of how Jack is used in this movie, where because he is so self-centered, there comes a point where you're exhausted watching him because now we're starting to see Johnny Depp do the things in his acting style that I just don't care for, where he's basically in, I'm just going to let the costume do all the talking and act goofy, Yeah, which gets annoying to watch after a certain point. And they come up with a brilliant idea because the people who made these charts are just, I guess the Riddler made these because they're all cryptic and shit. They have to literally rock the boat, do a complete 180. What is this? It's a good visual. When 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 they're upside down and when the water rushes back in, it's a good visual. That's what it is. That's all it is. I'm also pretty sure 10 people could not rock a boat like that. Yeah, I mean, I'm watching this. I'm like, okay, so Sparrow's telling, okay, he figured it out. But yeah, 10 people cannot go back and forth and rock this fucking thing. With these waves the way they are. Oh, my God. It's all convenience. It would have been amazing to watch them sail up a waterfall. Yeah. You know, in a, compl- a complete opposite to watching them sail over a waterfall. Yeah. While, while you're doing things illogical, do something like that. Do something that's a cool visual. Like you said, Adam, this, this movie is gorgeous to look at. But scenes like this just make it terrible to watch. Yeah. Once they're upside down, when that water rushes down and the boat emerges, a triumphant moment. Like, it's, oh, my God, this is great. Though, it's amazing how I thought maybe they didn't bring back Zimmer for this. I was like, well, he's nowhere to be found. But as I'm doing research, like, oh, Zimmer wrote eight new themes. For, I don't know where they are because I don't feel like there's any music, <laughs> any score in this movie whatsoever. That, all right. And, let me. And it, it's not right. rousing where it should be. Okay. This is where we're going to have a disagreement because I feel like some a teenager who has been just TPing a house this entire fucking podcast where I'm just throwing eggs at it. I'm putting toilet paper on the trees. I'm putting egg on the fucking cars. I'm doing everything I can to put this movie and make it a bad life. But I'm going to throw some compliments at it here. This is one of the best scores of Hans Zimmer's career. I absolutely love this score. When I came out of the theater, I went directly to a music store and bought the CD. And I put one of the rousing themes of that score at the end credits of this pod, of these podcasts, because I find his themes in this very good. It, it gets very emotional at times. We said that that first movie had 15 composers, and there were themes in that last movie, but I didn't really feel it. Kind of like how Adam's saying about this score. But this score, I completely feel, I, I love this score to pieces. And I think it's one of the only things I can say that's better than I've seen in previous films. I agree with Garrett. To a point, I don't think this is one of the best scores he's ever done. But when the movie actually remembers, hey, we have to let the music accompany some of these scenes, I like the compositions that he comes up with. But it's still few and far between because the movie has scenes go on for such an absurd amount of time that you realize the absence of music because there's just so much talking. Yeah, and I think that's what Adam's responding to. I think he's responding to a lot of the non-action going on. And and it makes, once it finally happens, again, just non-consequential. So they get off, presumably they got out of Davy Jones' locker, but no time to celebrate because they all put guns on each other. <laughs> Fun little thing. I do here. like, I like Mexican stands. Yeah. I like yep. this too. No, I like this because everyone, this is the only time where I'm like, all right, I know why everyone's doing the things that they're doing. And Jack fires, but their guns are all wet. So there's no, yeah, there's no way to spark. <laughs> so they're like, all right, let's go to this island and we'll restock and get back to shooting each other. But what a surprise. They're betrayed by the pirates who were with South Thang initially. Was it okay. betrayal number three? <laughs> yeah. Again, a heel turn. Yeah. So they're brought aboard South Thing's ship. They realize Will sold them out because he's suddenly the most important person. 
for the next 20 minutes and then it shifts back to Jack. <laughs> so Will gets Black Pearl and Jack is handed over to Beckett. These are like NFL trades. Who gets what? What are the compensatory? Like, what are the compensatory yes. picks? Even it seems so straightforward, but they're so overly complicated with what is fucking happening. Well, yeah, and it's not a one-on-one trade. I'm trading, you know, this person for this team just so that I can trade them to another team just so I can claim somebody off of waivers by the deadline. Yeah. And they use oh, Elizabeth. Shit. Elizabeth is a free agent because Barbosa just gives her to Sal Fang. <laughs> yes. And every time they mention the word Calypso in this movie, I just cringe because this, this whole subplot is, I think, the worst piece of writing in the movie because it is not established in the last movie whatsoever. No. And when she tells the story of Davy Jones in the second movie, which she does, she seems very happy about it. And in Mm -hmm. this movie, she has to be really pissed off at him. Yeah, Yeah, the who and the why of who she is and the reasoning. It's like they went, no, 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 no. We got a better idea. Well, didn't we already set up? Yeah, fuck that. I got something different that I want to do with it. And you can't do that at this point. You can't just decide you're going to change what you've already established. But this movie decides, yeah, we're gonna. Even though we're filming them together, we're still going to change things later on. These two are simultaneous productions, and they're still contradicting each other. Yeah, and and I think that's what I responded to when I said that I didn't like Naomi Harris in this movie. I should say I just don't like what they do with her in this, because you're right. She's a completely different character here. Because scenes don't know when to end, this negotiation, if you want to call it that, between Jack and Beckett, it goes on for so long that they intercut it with other scenes just to break the monotony. (laughs) 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 Because the resolution is, I will lead you to Shipwreck Cove in return for you settle my debt with Jones. That's really simple, but they keep talking about shit for another ten goddamn minutes. Because hmm. they talk about well, the- maybe I don't need you after all. Maybe I do. Like I, yeah. yeah. It, it just it, again, there's no need for it to be this fucking long. <laughs> like, mm. why can't they just go to the cove before everyone else gets there? Jack manages to escape in a similar reprieve to how he gets away in the first movie. Beckett says to send the Flying Dutchman to go after Sal Fang, and they'll go to Shipwreck Cove. And then the movie realizes there's too many characters, and they just kill off Sal Fang. Yeah. <laughs> after he tries to sexually assault Elizabeth, you know, mm-hmm. we got to remember there's a pirate, and then he just casually takes a fucking cannonball to the gut. Yeah, he's got shrapnel sticking out of his, yeah. uh, sticking out of his chest. He tells her, you know, you're now the captain of my ship just because you're the closest person to me before I die. This is basically like a Green Lantern where just because you're in proximity makes you the first person to get the ring. She gets a lot of lucky breaks in this movie. Dutchman comes aboard and she sees Norrington again. He is now Admiral, although not that that matters because he's barely in this fucking movie. Yeah, I I was surprised at how much we we didn't get of Norrington here. His storyline really should have ended at the end of the second movie and we just don't see him. Like he goes to live a normal life or whatever, but instead he just, he makes the problem worse and it's what gets him killed. Yeah. So Elizabeth is held captive again, which you could play a drinking game with the amount of times people are held in prison cells in this movie. <laughs> Where we introduced to Bootstrap, who has, I guess, early onset Alzheimer's. Because <laughs> he's, like, he doesn't remember Will. Every time he goes back into the wall, it like it's like a reset button. Mm. And again, it's the problem of how much time has passed. Because he was in pretty good shape, all things considered, for the second movie. And we're led to believe that this takes place in close proximity to the end of the second one. Did Davy mm-hmm. Jones kickstart the clock? 
Yeah, it's, yeah. it's so convenient. Adam, did you get flashbacks to the pillar in Hellraiser 3? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, I, the wanted, just... I wanted to yell to the writers, though, can we talk sensibly? Yeah. <laughs> but he says part of the crew, part of the ship is basically the whole. Which would have been great if we saw that that happened to the other characters as well. We saw one person that was part of the ship, but there were clearly a number of these crew members on the Dutchman who seem to be more taken over by being on the Dutchman longer than Bootstrap was. So if it would have been that Davy Jones forced him to be part of the ship, because if he's now deteriorating, quote unquote, then all the other characters should have been as well. But that's not what happened. They're not all part of the ship or part of the crew. So it's just how come nobody else? How come just him? We don't get any reason other than, as you said, this a reason for him to forget and remember so that he can matter later to Norrington and Will. Well, speaking of Will, the movie does not realize how much of a villain he is in this movie because he is depicted as murdering people, throwing them on barrels. Yeah, Beckett. We're supposed to like this guy. Yeah, and that's what I said earlier. I thought I had a good handle on who this character is. And in this movie, he's he's done a complete 180. And you're right. I don't like him here. And it was Will's movie last time. Like, Will had the heroic moments in that movie. Will took front and center in that movie. I praised Orlando Bloom in that movie. Here, again, I'm not blaming Bloom as much as I'm blaming the writing. It's a completely different character. Although I do like how Jack gets rid of him just breathing into his face. His breath is that bad that he passes out. That was pretty funny. Because <laughs> uh, Jack's like, you know, I want my ship back. He's like, your woman basically got me killed and you did nothing to stop her. <laughs> See, this is where the movie just keeps jumping back and forth. Because we then cut back to, even though we have seen Elizabeth two minutes ago, Norrington gets her released and then he is subsequently killed. Yeah. Yep. How close are they that they can run these lines to the other ship without anybody noticing on either side anyway? But it's mm-hmm. only because Bootstrap happens to be yep. taking a midnight stroll around the cruise ship. Why is he walking around? <laughs> this shit makes no goddamn sense. Although I do like the Davy Jones comes. He's like, oh, do you fear death? He just stabs him. He's like, all right, I guess that's, a- that's it. There's occasional good lines, good moments in between just so much bad gristle and fat. Well, the gristle continues to get shaved off because they arrive at Shipwreck Cove, and this is where it is revealed that Teodoma brought back Barbosa because she is Calypso, and she needs him to be freed of her curse. And that's the only reason he's agreeing to do all this. Because it answers the question, why would you bring him back if he doesn't know how to get to where they need to go? It's also the problem of, he was the villain of the first movie, but there's never any tension between him, Will, and Elizabeth. Like, they just go along with whatever he says. But if he, okay, so Barbosa's a pirate lord and Jack is a pirate lord. Why would they have ever been on the same ship together? Yes. Why would there be a mutiny? They wouldn't have been. And they make that clear that these pirate lords don't work together, don't like each other. So there's no way Barbosa and Jack would have been together. Mm-hmm. No, and they're lords of separate seas. Right. Even though it's they the seven both seas the plus seas. one. That's yeah. the piece of eight. And you want to talk about the uh, stereotypes that we saw in Singapore. Holy shit. <laughs> yeah, what, once we get to the uh, pirate court, it might as well be the Star Wars prequels with the amount of stereotypes that we see. <laughs> I mean, it is literally a Jedi Council, basically. But before they get there, Will has somehow survived. Beckett picks him up. And they make another deal to where I don't even know the parameters of this one, to be perfectly honest. I've seen this move five times. And I can't tell you exactly what is agreed upon here. Because he has the compass. So he gives that to Beckett so they can go to Shipwreck Cove. But I guess he also agrees to hand Jack over back to Davy Jones. Sure. Because yeah. 
somebody in the writer's room went, hey, doesn't that compass, wasn't that a big deal? Oh, yeah, 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 find a way to make that matter again. But it never really does. No, it doesn't. And what does matter, though, we finally get to Shipwreck Cove, meet the, it's a mad, 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 mad world of stereotypes. We got, <laughs> we got, we got a French privateer. We got the African warlord type of pirate. We got a, someone who's Middle Eastern. We would have had Sal Fang, but he got shot, so they saved us one stereotype. Um, but it also begs the question, how does Elizabeth know how to get to Shipwreck Cove? Hmm. Presumably Convenient. her crew must know. Yeah. But they have this whole meeting where Barbosa proposes, we have to free Calypso, maybe she'll help us. Jack's like, that's a dumb idea. I find this part funny with the pieces of eight where it turns out that Gibbs is like, oh yeah, because random shit we had in our pockets sounds very tiring. <laughs> As someone who frequently shops in the pieces of eight gift shop when I exit the Pirates of the Caribbean ride, that makes me laugh every time. Yeah, Barbosa's is the wooden eye, which makes sense why he'd be so protective of it in the previous movies. Elizabeth shows up and Jack's like, wait, he named you captain? What the fuck? So they're they're about to have a vote for the act of war, which can only be declared by the pirate king. Jack disputes this, as does someone else who was shot by... Uh... Oh, boy. So it was well documented that Johnny Depp based Jack Sparrow largely on Keith Richards. Mm-hmm. But they had to double down and give Keith Richards a cameo in this movie as his biological father. It's cute, but at the same time... It's putting a hat on a hat. We already know this. You're also taking away some of the mystique out of Johnny Depp's performance. Exactly. When you see the thing that mm. actually inspired it. Yep. And he sticks around for the entire movie. I didn't realize. I thought this was just his one scene and he's gone. No, he's here the entire, the rest of the movie. And my favorite stories from this movie, though, are the filming of these scenes. Because apparently, and here's a, this will come as a shock to everybody. Keith Richards showed up very, very drunk every single day he came to set here. <laughs> And Verbinski was getting pissed. Verbinski was like, look, I need you to stand for these scenes. He had to be held up the majority of the time for these scenes. And Richards just looked at him and was like, you knew what you were getting when you signed me, pretty much, is what he said. And I'm like, dude, just show up and be professional. I don't know. You're right, Matt. Cute is the best way to put it. It's a jab, jab. We're putting this guy in because this is the guy that Johnny Depp based his character on. And they are friends. So Depp did convince him to come to this set. But he, of everybody here, he looks like he wants to be here the least. Well, it's also really weird because piracy has always been about the unspoken rule and everyone, every man for themselves. But they're all mm -hmm. governed by this giant codex of rules and laws. That's a good point. Yeah, there, there are rules for them, too. And I hate these kind of scenes. You know, we'll talk about the Star Wars twilight there's that whole council uh, even something like true blood does something similar blade i guess it's vampires are, are, are the big <laughs> big thing where they have these yeah, the undead so they vote for pirate king jack swerves gives elizabeth a second vote so she becomes the king even though she's a woman very very yeah that's, there's the joke we then cut to davy jones actually visiting calypso and it's the only time where you see bill nighy without the mocap effect mm -hmm. on top of him and they do a good job of still not making him look like Bill Nighy. Correct. Know, and, yeah, and that's a good point. I thought it was going to all go away to everything, but it's a nice job of you could believe that this man became what Davy Jones looks like. Mm -hmm. He basically says, yep, see you later. Nothing I can do. <laughs> <laughs> so in this movie, again, there's so many fucking establishing shots in this movie. Every time there's a new scene, they go on for 10 seconds. 10 seconds of watching the ship sail to the end of the world. We have 10 mm -hmm. seconds of overhead shot of this island with the two parties walking towards each other. Although it has my favorite sight gag in the movie of Davy Jones standing in a bucket. 
Yes. This freaking sandbar. Holy crap. It's just one more exchange, trade, deal. It. Oh, my. It's the worst of what happened in Beckett's office over and over and over, but on a sandbar. I love the visual of Davy Jones in the bucket. Ha ha. I don't know why he can't stand five feet away in the actual surf, you know, but it, it's a good gag. It looks funny. But we have seen this exact scene now played over and over and over again. Again, Will and Jack are traded, so Jack goes into a prison cell. Will leaves with them, even though Jack's not going to stay on the ship. Also, Beckett gives him the compass back, which is fucking stupid. Mm -hmm. I don't know why anything happens on this beach. And I remember going, okay, this confused me before. I am going to pay attention. I have a notepad. I have closed captioning on. I am ready. And it ends, and I still have no idea why any of this happened. Yeah, it's also them, like, not saying we'll give you the chance to run, which is really what, it's basically a parlay, is what the movie leads you to believe, but then it gets sidetracked because we have to free Calypso from her human bonds, and then we cut to the last hour of this movie, which is just a battle. I was so looking forward to Calypso being freed, and I remember it being a big payoff, and I could not believe how much it's not. It's a really bad effect of, what was that old movie, The Giant 40-Foot Woman? Oh, Attack of the 50-Foot you know, Woman? Yeah. Attack of the 50-Foot Woman. I mean, it's that same thing, and it does not look good at all. The transformation into crabs, okay, great, but we literally saw that at the beginning of the film with the rocks. But other than that, she's gone. There's clouds. We don't even get the Voldemort face coming out of the clouds that I thought mm-hmm. we would get. We don't get anything else that this god of weather in seas. I mean, she's just gone, and it kind of sucks because I thought Naomi Harris, like, I like what she brought to it. She brought more to that character than the screenwriters ever fucking did. But, like, every female character in this movie, they just don't give a crap to finish it off well. There's a swirling toilet in the middle of the ocean. That's basically it. As yeah. far as what she does. Um, Let her cackle. Do something. You know, you're mine now, David Jones. I mean, something that you feel like she is the embodiment of this storm going on. Well, you never feel that because we then cut back to Jack having more conversations with himself. <sighs> For the fourth fucking time. Mm-hmm. For a movie that's three hours long, they sure repeat a lot of the same scenes over and over. And I know at this time he was planning on doing the films that he had already had lined up after this. So I know he was in active pre-production on like uh, Sweeney Todd and so many other things. And I think he's just coming out hours late of the trailer every single day. That's well documented and such. And just deciding that he's going to play with whatever's in his mind at the time. Don't mean that on a pun on this one, literally taking his brain out of itself. It is such a self-indulgent, masturbatory effort that wears itself thin yeah and when he drops his brain i feel like the writers did that before they started working on this movie (laughs) (laughs) i'm also fine with revisiting gags and stuff as far as tying up loose ends but do we really need the two guards from the first movie to come back oh fucking a to act exactly like the two pirates that we've gotten in the first one and they're gonna join pirates and get it because the good guys are just like the pirates and we're all one bit jesus criminy Hey, but we got the cameo of the dog again. I did like the dog coming back. Yeah, I did. The keys in the dog's mouth opened the codex. That popped me. I was, that made me laugh. Well, I shouldn't call it the codex. We should save that for a couple months when we cover Man of Steel. But, uh, (laughs) (laughs) but for something that should be like the pirate armada versus the entire East India Company, it's two ships and everyone else just watches. (laughs) Yes. 
<sighs> so it does not feel as epic as it should because, like I said, it's two ships, and you had a lot of shit going on. Like you have Barbosa marrying Will and Elizabeth on the deck of the. Okay, all right. This is when it wins me back. This scene right here of him marrying as they're battling. To me, this is what recaptured a lot of what I liked about that first movie. It's stupid. But it's fun as fuck. And it, I got to tell you guys, up until this point, this movie was getting a very low score. But from this point on, from this little marriage on, I'm with this movie. I think I think it ends pretty well. There's one scene coming up that I fucking hate still. But mostly from this point on, I'm having a good time with this movie. Once they go into the swirling toilet bowl of terror, I enjoy the battle a lot. I think Verbinski, throughout this entire series, but especially in this one, every action I think is shot ridiculously well. And that is saying something, being that I feel like I know my placement, even though all I get is wood, rain, dark colors and characters that are not very easy to make out but i never feel like i'm lost in these battle scenes and the fight going on with them all i think is just very well done the action the sword fight when i didn't care for the sword fights really before but in here it's much more engaging and garrett i'm gonna agree with you 100 percent when i don't care for will or elizabeth uh, elizabeth yeah will just, i don't know that charisma is not there as much but when barbosa's like i'm a little busy at the moment he's hamming it up so fun and then when he starts doing it while he's killing the characters that are attacking him mm-hmm. it's it's delightful it is fun it brings back the lightness while this yeah. battle is going on and you're right i am suddenly re-endeared to these characters in this moment there's nothing in either of your statements that I disagree with. I do think the movie wins me back because it remembers, oh, that's right. We actually have characters that we like and we know everyone's objective. It's like the movie for a climax, it slows the fuck down from a just throwing stuff at you narratively. It's just, we're going to do visual spectacle, but give you a good idea of where everyone stands. You know, the proximity is good. You got everyone fighting on different sections of the ship. A little convenient that this is where bootstrap remembers. Oh yeah, that's my son. That's a little convenient, but the movie misdirects you by thinking that Will is a goner because he gets stabbed. Mm-hmm. And technically he is. Yeah, he's technically killed. I do like that in this, you know, that Davy Jones is almost offended by this love that's going on. We're reminded that Davy Jones is just a scorned lover, and it's just going to be like, you're going to get, oh, fuck this. And, you know, his answer to it is he's going to kill Will because of it. Which he does, but his heart is stabbed, which this is a PG-13 movie, and you see someone's heart get stabbed with a broken <laughs> sword. Although Jack is not the one to do it. He realizes that to save Will, slash condemn him, so to speak, he has to be the one to stab the heart. And David Jones falls off the side of the boat, never to be seen again. I like earlier on that Jack is trying to decide during the argument he had with himself that he's trying to decide, would it be worth it to be the immortal Jack Sparrow? Would it be something to live forever, even in servitude? And I like that he's kind of playing around with it. You know, he's died now and come back. He's dealt with that pirate curse. So you think that he might be willing to sell off into infamy. And instead, he has a moment where he's giving it up to save as much as he's going to slave Will to the ship. He saves him from perishing by doing so. And that battle between him and Davy Jones up on the sails. Yeah. Fucking amazing. Very nicely directed. But this is the scene that I fucking hate is when he's holding out this heart and he's and he's about ready to stab it. But he just holds it for like literally, I would say, about 120 seconds. Dude, just do it already. But it gets taken away from him. I'm like, oh, my God. Yet another reason to hate Jack Sparrow in this movie. 
So I also love how they take out the Flying Dutchman, and the entire army is like, all right, fuck this. Because <laughs> they basically, this is where the, the Dutchman comes back, they blow Beckett's ship to smithereens and him along with it. Such a douchebag this scene is not this movie of this guy suddenly paralyzed by not getting his way and just walking through the oh fucking i hate hate it hate it hate it hate it so the day is one and all the pirates are celebrating like they actually did something which cracks me up (laughs) (laughs) they watched yeah they got participation trophies basically is one yeah pretty much (laughs) i guess the bad part of the curse is lifted because all the fish people turn back to normal but they still are technically tied to the ship as will's father says you know i still have a debt that needs to be paid so whether he likes to or not will is now the captain of the flying dutchman and has to do the job that jones stopped doing but he does get his last day with elizabeth before he sails off for another 10 years from now i'll say this i like that they don't get a happy ending so to speak Oh, she got a happy ending. Okay. <laughs> they, 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 they pan away from Will kissing her leg to her face, and her face suddenly, like, rears back. <laughs> and I was like, holy shit. Yeah, but before she goes, she tries to kiss Jack, and he's like, stay the fuck away from me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not falling for the banana in the tailpipe again. <laughs> yeah, she goes, it never would have worked out. And he goes, yeah, keep telling yourself that. <laughs> so will sells off leaves elizabeth with the chest that has his heart in it you'd think he would have decorated it a little bit more differently <laughs> but then cut back to jack in tortuga ready to set sail but turns out barbosa stole his ship again <laughs> and the crew is all pissed off they're like look we don't feel great about leaving jack behind again so can you at least show us what you stole so barbosa has the charts that lead to as they say, the Fountain of Youth, which they pulled out of its ass at the last minute. That's never mm-hmm. said before. And he finds that the entire middle section has been cut out. Which I wish it pertained to this movie. Jack sails off by himself because he tells Gibbs to go hang out with the ladies. He says, what do you know about sea turtles? That's his pickup line. <laughs> so Jack sails off on his little dinghy in the same way that he entered the first movie to seemingly go track down the Fountain of Youth. And he closes his compass, sails off, and credits roll for 20 minutes before the post-credit scene. I do like that Sparrow does use the line, drink up me hearties, yo-ho, to end the movie. I thought that was a nice way to conclude it, but that's about the only positive thing I can say about Jack Sparrow in this movie. <laughs> Garrett, did you know that this had a post-credit scene? No, oh. I did not. So it's basically... I did not. I had gone through almost three hours of this. I was done. I was <laughs> like, well, you know, I, I did it with that Shining movie, with that Shining miniseries. I'm like, I'm just going to do one big ass nummy session, which I did for this as well. There were no breaks. And I was once those credits started, I'm like, yo-ho, I'm done. Yep, so <laughs> what the, was the post-credits scene? So the credits, it cuts to literally 10 years later, and it's Elizabeth and her son watching Will sail towards them. Oh, wow. And she does not look 10 years older, for the record. <laughs> okay, I was going to say, did they do some weird Sigourney Weaver makeup on her to no, make her no, look? No, no, no. And, oh, okay. and she gives him this look like CinemaSins has a quote where it's like, she looks at the kid and goes, you can't be around for all the massive fucking we're going to do that will likely result <laughs> in, at least, in at least one of your siblings. <laughs> oh. But after three hours, the trilogy was over. But before we talk about our thoughts as a whole, let's, much like the Brethren Court, we'll give our own vote on this movie. So Adam, on a scale of one to 10, what do you score at world's end? As we discussed last week, I went into that movie expecting the boat to be leaking 
and I found it pretty dang secure and smooth sailing, and I enjoyed that one more than I thought. This one, however, the ship has sprung a leak, and not only has it sprung a leak, but it's been riddled with cannon fire, and the ship is going down. What's, I think, most disappointing is the visuals in this movie are as good as any in this entire trilogy up to this point. I think it is absolutely phenomenal work. I think the concept artists, what they created and then what ended up being rendered on screen is phenomenal. An art of Pirates of the Caribbean is probably a book that I would enjoy sifting through as I love movie art books, and I think this is superb. The acting throughout is done well. I think that for the most part, the characterizations that we've gotten change throughout this movie, and the characterizations may not match up to what we got in films one and two, but the actors are doing a good job with it. So where does the problem lie? solely with this script. It is amazing that you can get a movie filmed at the same time as the one that came before it, and they can feel so disjointed and so off from one another. The inclusion of characters that don't matter, the quick writing off of characters that don't matter, the killing of a kraken off screen, that Beckett just drops a line that we're supposed to believe he's powerful because he told Davy Jones to kill the kraken, and Davy Jones just did it. And that's a line that's dropped in this movie is so sad and disappointing. For the buildup that this movie should have been to for a rousing end to a trilogy it really goes over the edge and it's presumptuousness of what you think you want it's artistic douchebaggery of visuals over the actual script and the contrivances that are put in this thing are so hard to overcome and at the same time I wasn't offended watching this movie. I just realized how stupid the choices were throughout because there are a lot of times weaving in and out much like a the sails on the ship being patched back together. There is patch jobs being done that make me laugh, make me smile, re-endear me to certain characters going throughout. But at the same time, those sails are also full of holes. It's not a movie that I'm going to watch on its own. There are sequences that I think are done really, really well. But as a whole, it's sad to see just how unfinished the script was. And it's why I loathe these big movie houses deciding that they are going to hit a date script be damned because they damned this movie by failing to address the issues because they thought that it was unsinkable. Well, this sunk this franchise for a couple years, and I think that this movie put it in a way that it never really recovered from. Uh, I know we got two more films to discuss, but I think this is when all the fractures really start showing in the ship. It's not abysmal, but it is such a step down from the enjoyment it had the last two films. So I'm not going to damn it, but I'm not going to praise it. It's sitting in purgatory like Jack was. This is a five. Five on ten for Adam Garrett. I have to ask the question. Is this one of those times where you're going to reach into your own chest and pull out the patented four on ten? I have a score written down. Stay tuned to find out exactly which one that is for a few minutes while I go over just the utter disappointment I had in revisiting this particular movie. You know, this has been one of the most interesting revisits we have done, not only here, Matt, but from when we started at Binge as well, because having not seen these since they were in theaters, I had very different memories of all of them than what I've come out with in the end of this. I said this was the best of the three when I initially saw this in 2007, and I thought going in that that would be the way this has come out, but my God. I think from the time they sing Hoist the Colors, which I think is actually a pretty cool moment in this movie. We didn't really dive into that 
But it was right at the beginning when they start doing that. From that moment on, it goes to some weird David Lynch, Terry Gilliam hybrid, and it is poorly done. And I am so tuned out of this movie for a lot of it. Two-thirds of this movie is just a disjointed fucking mess. Once we get to the final battle and we have the reading of the nuptials of Will and Elizabeth, I'm back in. But Jack Sparrow is a huge black eye in this movie. I can't stand him in this movie for a character I was so endeared to for two straight movies. Every time he's on screen here, he has good moments. But those moments are too far in between for me. He is chewing scenery in a bad way, not the ways we've described in the first two movies. The plotting here, Adam hit it right. This script, it really, really shows that this thing was not even finished. These two guys, they came in, they tried writing two full movies. They failed because this movie does not hold a candle. I mean, we said that the first one's not exactly a tour de force in writing, but everything kind of connected in that movie. Nothing connects in this. Everything's there just to be there. The finale is great. I think the score is the best of the three we've seen so far. But if it wasn't for that final third of this movie, as I mentioned, this would be a very, very low two or three. As it is, I have the same score written down that Adam said. I give, I'm giving it a five because I think the final battle is something to be seen. And I think the spirit of those first two movies are there in that final third. But you have to look really, really hard and you have to sit through a whole lot of shit to get there. Yeah, five out of ten for me. Oh my god, I can't believe this. We all have the same score. I I settled on a five as well, but I think I am the one who has the steepest drop-off between the first two and this one, if you look at my two scores for the previous ones, because I find, much like the telescope that pirates look through, it's a bit unfocused. And when I say a bit, I mean tremendously unfocused. So much of this movie is screenwriting that feels like the writers are throwing pages up into the air, picking them up in no particular order, and just shooting in that sequence. The big seeds of bad screenwriting are all committed in this movie. Conveniences, convolutions, and contrivances. All three of them are in this movie, and that equates to bad writing on a level that I thought this series was better than when you look at those first two. And Adam hit the nail on the point. This is what happens when you put in a mandate before the creative process. You have to wonder how would have things turned out if this movie had another six months or a year to punch things up and not do the back-to-back shooting schedule. I think things would have turned out different. Maybe the start point and end point would have been the same, but the charts to get there would have been nowhere near as hard to decipher as the navigational ones that are used in this movie. As I said, this is the one where Jack, it's technically his movie, but I don't think that was the right call. And I don't think it was executed in the best way. But there's enough here when it comes to Verbinski's directing and his handle on action sequences and characters like Barbosa that I just love watching that I don't view this as a miserable experience, but it's burdened by too many characters and too much fat. I like my burgers with an 80-20% ratio. This one's leaning pretty close to that, but in the fat to protein scale for me. But I would not call this a terrible movie because there's a lot of craftsmanship in the direction and the the production design. But as a conclusion to the first two movies, it's a big disappointment. So I'm in a five on 10 as well, which is surprising to myself that all three of us have the same score. 
yeah. it just goes to show that this was the most unexpected series that we've done because that happened with the first movie as well. We, it's amazing. We watch these at different times and folks, we do not hint whatsoever until we start discussing these films. Oh, that makes me happy that we no, get there though. Really. No, we don't say, okay, we're watching, I'm watching it now and oh boy guys, this is really sucking. I can't wait to get this on the, like we don't do that. We, nope. we discuss everything, but the movies we're going to be discussing in our little thread that we have. <laughs> and it was just such a disappointment to revisit this, but I will say of this trilogy that we've done, I'm glad I revisited it. I'm glad that I have reasons to maybe go back to that first movie. A little bit of a spoiler alert. I revisited that first movie since we discussed it. Mm-hmm. I find that movie to be extremely fun. Despite this concluding the story, Disney greenlit another sequel, but they said it was going to be a standalone entry, which makes sense because they didn't want to bring Orlando Bloom or Karen Knightley back. <laughs> when you're going to get $40 have, million dollars to hit to one man, yeah, you got no money for anybody else. Yeah, I have reasons to believe, and I'll get into it next week, but <laughs> there are reasons to believe, and I think it contains tourists in the title – why we have Johnny Depp next week as well. But I'll get uh, to that when we discuss that movie. <laughs> yeah, and it was a new standalone, new director. The only thing that didn't change was the budget, because this one inflated even more than this one. Yeah. Because next week's movie... Oh, wow. Next week's movie, for those of you who don't know, it is still the most expensive movie ever made. Is it really? Budget reported of $379 million. Holy crap. And isn't it like I remember that movie feeling smaller and shorter. Damn. It is, it is shorter than two or three. And we'll talk about where the fuck all that money went to and why it cost so much money. Because there's a considerable amount of development hell to a point that the movie went through to get made. But for you guys who didn't care for the third one necessarily, are you excited at the prospect of like a new director taking over this franchise or, or things like that? I think it's a shame that. I was as hard on Burbinsky as I was in this movie. I think he deserved better to go out, honestly. I thought he deserved one more chance. I know him and Depp. They got along, but not during the movie. They, After the filming was over and they go to the premieres and things, they would say, well, you know, it was tough to get through, but we had to do that in order to get the movie that we got. I don't think he was ready to come back, and I think it's a shame. I really wish I would have gotten a Verbinski Pirates of the Caribbean movie, more like that first one than we ended up getting. But I have... One memory of next week's movie, only one. Again, I saw it in theaters. There was another one and done, and that's Mermaids. That's the only thing I remember about next week's movie. So I'm going in pretty cold because I don't remember any real storylines or anything heading into next week's film. And like Garrett, I, I Verbinski was not my issue with this movie at all. I thought he did a, I thought he was a great director and and shooter of what happened. I do think he had no desire to work with Johnny Depp ever again, and I literally think that's what happened. Well, he did end up no. working with him again on Lone Ranger eventually. Did he do Lone Ranger? Damn. Yeah, he did. Uh, yeah, wow, and, that's why and he and hasn't made a movie of that scale ever again. <laughs> Yeah. And a Disney film at that. Wow. Mm-hmm. I wonder if that was a contract thing with Disney and know. him. I don't know. I mean, um, did Rango too, which Depp also. So. Yeah. No, to me, my memory was Penelope Cruz, which big crush on Penelope Cruz at that time. Ever since I saw Vanilla Sky. You're going to bring that up again. Well, no, okay. I, one, I wasn't going to bring up Vanilla Sky, but I was going to bring up Open Your Eyes that that movie was based on. <laughs> but yes, I'll go ahead and bring up Vanilla Sky since I got to bring it up once every retrospective. <laughs> but I remember being excited for Penelope Cruz, but I remember being excited 
for the character of Blackbeard being introduced because it felt like a natural way to go with piracy. And as much as I was kind of over Jack Sparrow, everything else around it looked fun and excited to me. And I haven't rewatched it at the time that we're recording this, but I remember liking this movie quite a bunch more than any of the other sequels. We saw how well that worked for me on this film. (laughs) (laughs) Even as the fan, I didn't desire to go see this when it was coming out. You gotta remember, I was, let's see, I was 18 when this was coming out, and it had been four years since the series ended, and I thought everything was wrapped up. I liked the idea of Jack going on another adventure that we don't need to see. So to me, this seemed to me like Disney flexing its muscles and saying, let's crank one more out, see if we can start a new trilogy, because they called it Standalone. I was like, this is really just a ground zero for trying to kickstart a new trilogy. And by this point, they had reconfigured the ride, they had introduced and included Jack Sparrow in the ride in three or four different areas. Captain Barbosa is actually in the ride up on the ship during a ship battle as you get into mm-hmm. that sequence in the ride. So part of this budget might have been amortized cost that they went, you know what, we get to, you know, funky Hollywood math, but they get to add elements to a ride that then they could put it into the budget of this film. But that ride was more popular than ever. The marketing, I mean, they were selling not just off of this, but you could find kids. I mean, Jack Sparrow is a Halloween costume and he still is today. And you go, Garrett, I think you mentioned you go to cons and stuff like that. And Jack Sparrow is seen everywhere. Yeah, there's a there's a huge conglomerate of sparrows still, even with the depth stuff going on. There are still sparrows every single con you go to. So leave it with the news that it's going to be another few years, but even Tron is getting another film. Disney is not one to leave a dollar on the table if they think that they could get a piece of aid out of it. But until next time, when we review Pirates of the Caribbean on Stranger Tides, there was a time when a pirate was free to make their own podcast in the world. Thanks, guys. Ten years I devoted to the duty you charged to me. Ten years I looked after those who died at sea. And finally, when we could be together again, you weren't there. this episode of the three men in a retrospective podcast exclusively here at percolated media we're not out of this yet join us next week for an entirely new review Just doing my civic duty, sir. And if you would be so kind, please take a moment and give us a positive review and rating on your podcast platform of choice. You have a date to pay. It truly helps others find and discover our podcasts.
This ship cannot be crewed by two men. You'll never make it out of the bay. Sam, I'm Captain Jack Sparrow. Savvy. The Three Men in a Retrospective podcast is produced by Garrett, Matt, Adam, and Nathan. Come to join me, crew lad. Welcome aboard. Edited by Garrett. Do you know how long I've been waiting for this moment? Voiceovers by Adam. I will not have that smile on your face as I strike you down. The Three Men in a Retrospective Podcast is for review and discussion, and all clips, music, and audio cues are used as such. I uh, apologize if I seem forward, but I must speak my mind. I gotta go. It was a theatrical experience. And the one thing, and the thing I, I the, I'm sorry, Matt. The thing I remember most from that theatrical experience. <laughs> I was surprised that this movie opened up on Elizabeth and and um, what's his name, Orlando Bloom. <laughs> I don't remember his name. Um, Will, just because. But he runs into a familiar face, at least for him. The previously talked about Bootstrap Bill, Will's father, uh, played by. Oh, oh, I know it's Skarsgård. Stellan Skarsgård. Stellan Skarsgård. He's the patriarch of the family. So now you're like, oh, that's why Jack's running. Makes total makes total sense now why he'd be so terrified. Yeah, again, it's set up and payoff, right, Matt? Yeah, exactly. Speaking of payoff, oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. No, no, no. That was, that was me. I was trying to say. The only thing I didn't on that one, I'm like. Yeah, this is a movie that doesn't have the finest of edges. And if you really think hard about it, it's like a great amusement park ride where if you think too hard about it, you hear the creaking of the of the automatons and stuff. Was that on purpose, Matt? No. Oh, okay. Just the amusement park ride. consciousness, like a lot of Johnny Depp's improvisation. <laughs> you just said amusement park ride. I just found that a funny connection. <laughs> but they make up for it with a hell of a sword fight, I must say. Yeah, this triple sword fight is... God damn it, my bike keeps... Hold on, guys, it keeps bumping. Uh, this triple sword fight is great. They're, they're revolving on all these, like, carousels and things. This is something that you would see in, like, a stunt show. It's fantastic. Adam, you've been awfully quiet. Are you still awake? Damn it, I just realized I was on mute. I've been talking. <laughs> Shit. Fuck. Um, God damn it. Um, that, this this three-way sword fight is, is great. <laughs>